this morning from a book, the title of which is Deepa Ma, The Life and Legacy of a Buddhist Master. Deepa Ma was a longtime teacher in residence at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Fairly unique, never having received formal Dharma teacher training, was someone who the power and the truth of her practice just shone forth. And if you ever have the opportunity to sit with a teacher who worked with her, their, their eyes light up. You can still feel her presence through their words. And what was most inspiring about her was her simplicity and the peace you would feel just by seeing her uh, pass by you doing walking meditation. Also someone who had a great influence on the centering prayer tradition. There was a, a nearby Catholic monastery and uh, Father Keating and some other of the brothers who lived there uh, started coming to the Insight Meditation Society uh, to sit with Deepama and uh, were inspired by the simplicity again of her practice, the power of that simplicity and uh, authored the, the centering prayer tradition which took Catholic teachings and uh, sort of took them back towards some of their contemplative origins. Your mind is all stories. Deepama did not say that the mind is mostly stories. She said that there's nothing in the mind but stories. These are the personal dramas that create and maintain the sense of individual identity. Who we are, what we do, and what we are and are not capable of. Without our being aware of it, the endless series of such thoughts drives and limits our lives. And yet those stories are without substance. Without our being aware of it, the endless series of such thoughts drives and limits our lives. Deepama challenged students' beliefs in these stories, their attachment to the stories. When someone said, I can't do that, she would ask, are you sure? Who says? Why not? She encouraged students to observe the stories, to see their emptiness, and to go beyond the limitations they impose. Let go of thinking, she said. Meditation is not about thinking. At the same time, Deepama taught that the mind is not an enemy to be gotten rid of. Rather, in the process of befriending the mind, in getting to know it and accept it, it ceases to be a problem. Deepama knew the freedom that follows that process. She lived in a state of thought-free awareness. In a group interview, Jack Cornfield innocently asked, what is it like in your mind? Deepama smiled, closed her eyes, and quietly answered, in my mind, there are three things, concentration, loving kindness, and peace. Jack, not sure if he had heard correctly, asked, is that all? Yes, that is all. Deepama replied. As I was gathering some materials for this talk, some other offerings that I'm doing, some classes I'm teaching, came across a painting by Francisco Goya called The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters. And the epigraph of the painting reads, fantasy abandoned by reason produces impossible monsters. United with reason, Fantasy is the mother of the arts and the origin of their marvels. I'm going to reflect on a story 
that uh, I feel captures the essence of that epigraph. I came across a, a reading of a blog written by Linda Carroll. I uh, had never read it before, well worth checking out, uh, called Crossing Genres. And it struck me because I was familiar with the story that she was reflecting upon. Perhaps you've heard it. There's an old story about two wolves that goes something like this. An old Cherokee grandfather is telling a grandson a story. A fight is going on inside of me, he said. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, and greed, arrogance, resentment, lies, and ego. He continued. The other's good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The two wolves are fighting to the death. Wide-eyed, the boy asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one that you feed. I see that a lot. It's a poster that gets hung up a lot in rehabs. So this was a story not originating in the Cherokee tradition. It was from a sermon given by Billy Graham called The Holy Spirit, Activating God's Power in Your Life. When he first told that story, the Cherokee was an Inuit. He probably referred to them as Eskimos. Apparently it got a lot of bad press in Canada, so he changed the story to a Cherokee grandfather because at that point, it was in the 70s, the Cherokees wouldn't be able to challenge him because the Cherokees were on a somewhat of a media blackout because of uh, the repression from the rebellion at Wounded Knee. They were treated like war criminals, essentially. So what Billy Graham is doing here was an act of what we would call misappropriation. He was trying to overlay a concept of inner darkness or original sin, something that's very westernized, on top of a tradition and a culture that would not have accepted that. Either the Cherokee or the Inuit cultures would never have offered such a teaching. Perhaps it's been said by others. I've known uh, this to be said by Annie Dillard uh, in a writing of hers called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. There is a Inuit talking to a priest who had come to evangelize him, come to convert him to Catholicism. The Inuit says to the priest, if I did not know about God and sin, would I go to hell? The priest replies, no, not if you did not know. And the Inuit replies, then why did you tell me? <laughs> Linda Carroll's point is that this anger, this part of ourselves that we sometimes reflect on, maybe what Tara would call a toxic othering, not something that is inherently bad in itself, can lead us to some unskillful actions at times, but we won't change things in this world unless we become good and mad. And we do ourselves a disservice when we pretend that all anger is bad. Moreover, what the world needs is for more good people to be angry. And if you're looking around at this world and you see a lot of the things that are going on and that are broken, and you don't think that they are, maybe it's you that is broken. So the mind, maybe not synonymous necessarily with the brain, 
a lot of debate, a lot, a lot of... Uh, a lot of speculation, a lot of thought over the years that would take me too long to explain whether the brain and the mind are the same thing. Nevertheless, one of the things that is often mischaracterized about meditation is that we can turn the mind off somehow, that we can become clear or blank in the mind. A bit of a misnomer. Uh, the mind never really turns off. It may slow down. It may quiet. We may have a better relationship to it. Jack Cornfield, who uh, was part of the story we just heard, uh, I'm not sure if he coined this term or not, I've heard him use it a number of times. The mind is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. Uh, psychology might call this cognitive fusion, where we uh, confuse our thoughts for facts, that we confuse the reactions of the midbrain, of the reptile brain, for facts. Uh, reflecting there again on Goya's thoughts, that if the mind can be more skillful, if we can be in more of a harmonious relationship to the mind, this is the mother of the arts, the origin of the marvels of the arts. Yet, as the Buddha re reminds us in the Dhammapada, if we have an unskillful relationship to the mind, he, he uses two images. Often in the Dhammapada, you get these contrasting images the first image is that of an unskillful mind, a mind filled with greed and envy and sorrow. Sorrows roll over them as the wheel of a cart rolls over the tracks of the bullock that draws. Meanwhile, if we have a more skillful relationship to the mind, joy will follow us like a shadow that never leaves. As Joanna was reflecting earlier, the midbrain served us very well. Um, what, what stays with us today as part of that midbrain is what uh, neuroscientist and meditation teacher Rick Hansen calls our negativity bias. He's coined a, a phrase about this that uh, I like quite a bit. The brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, Teflon for positive ones. When the world was far more dangerous, we needed to be much more aware that things were dangerous. A cut on the arm could kill you. The world is still at times a dangerous place, and I offer this teaching a lot, and I always like to say that I'm a six foot three, 210 pound white man. The world's a lot less dangerous for me than it is for a lot of other people, and I recognize that. While I can also say on a more universal level, most of us didn't have lions stalking us as we were coming to church this morning, and that was part of the human ancestor's daily experience. So in order to experience something that was at one time dangerous and is now safe, there's no one number but maybe 10, 100, 1,000 times before we could actually believe things were safe. So the mind will tell us all sorts of things if we've experienced something dangerous. What uh, a colleague of mine uh, in the rehabilitation world says about uh, anyone who has a disorder, who has a toxic way of thinking, we come by our neuroses honestly. There's always something underneath that. There's a good reason why we act the way we do. In a certain way, this is what has driven evolution. Uh, Robert Wright, a theologian at Columbia University, said, we're condemned to always want things to be a little different, to always want a little more. The fish in the ocean, who wants the fishbowl? We're not designed by natural selection to want to be happy. We have to rebel, actually, against natural selection if we want to find peace. 
So as Joanna said, other groups were at one time quite dangerous. How we could tell out-group from in-group was that they often looked different than us. Not just skin color, manner of dress, way of speech. It served us very well. Today it does not serve us as well. Probably doesn't serve us well at all. We could call that toxic othering. And what we also tend to do is we other ourselves. There's a, a story that Tara tells. I'm a graduate of her teacher training. Very fortunate to have heard many of her stories. A Brazilian soccer player, quite famous. Um, after a, a match one day, a, a young woman comes up to her and says, my baby's so sick, he's dying, he needs immediate medical service, I have no money, can you please give me some money so my son can go to the hospital? Gives her a few thousand dollars. Weeks later, someone comes to him and says, that woman, you know she scams many people with that story all the time. She has no sick son, she was just fooling you to get the money. The soccer player replied, so you mean to tell me there's no sick baby? being excited. I hear that story and I think I would never react that way. And there's that layer of judgment that I add upon myself, that I think of myself as radically different from these people that have open hearts and open minds. So again, as Joanna was saying, layer upon layer upon layer of ways that we can understand ourselves in distinction from others in unskillful ways. What we do need, however, is to find our ways to be in relationship with others, to be in community with what evolution would suggest more so than survival of the fittest is what um, evolutionary biologist Luis Cozzolino refers to as not being survival of the fittest but survival of the nurtured. So that when we get into these states of being, what Tara calls limbic hijack, where we forget our higher selves where the frontal cortex goes offline. We need ways of being able to come back out of, another term she uses, the trance of unworthiness, to come back to stop turning on ourselves or othering ourselves. The best way to do this is in community. Many different teachings around how to, how to soothe, how to come back from, to wake up from that trance. Tara's three elements are mindfulness, vulnerability, and self-nurture. Not radically different from Deepa Ma's description of her own mind. Connectedness, loving kindness, and peace. We were originally this morning going to do a whole service on Mary Oliver, and as we got talking, things evolved. So. I have a few quotes from her. Uh, we've heard one already. The, the second, I've never found this. I've heard a teacher quote this. Um, so if this is not Mary Oliver, I apologize. I don't really care because I think it's a great quote. <laughs> There's nothing in this world, if I pay attention to it long enough, that I don't fall in love with. If there is, I have not yet met it. And the, the final teaching I'll leave us with, a colleague of Tara's, uh, someone else very much worth checking out, uh, Kristen Neff, does a lot of work around compassion, particularly self-compassion. Her three elements, 
and these are very parallel teachings, mindfulness, kindness, and humility. How she talks about this, saying that compassion involves these three elements. It involves the recognition and clear seeing of suffering. It also involves feelings of kindness for people who are suffering so that the desire to help or to ameliorate suffering emerges. And finally, compassion involves recognizing our shared human condition, flawed and fragile as it is. Probably know that mindfulness has been a huge topic of research. It's, um, it's actually becoming uh, a, a term, a concept that's overly used. I uh, was out to dinner one night and saw uh, that I could order something called a Buddha beer. And it, the, it was advertised as the mindful beer. We reached peak mindfulness. Mindfulness has jumped the shark. The new research, the new, what was at one time mindfulness, that compassion is the new area of, of research. And some really interesting stuff has uh, come out of work around people who are being offered self-compassion-based um, interventions. Less rumination, more resilience, persistence, health, and clarity are what are not only self-reported, but things that we can observe through functional MRI. We could see this in the mind. We could see less activity in the midbrain, more activity in the left prefrontal cortex. One of the areas that's dear to me, uh, I do some volunteer chaplaincy at uh, the VA in Coatesville on their trauma ward. Prediction of PTSD resilience is one of the major benefits, some of the emerging work around self-compassion, as well as simple things, counteracting loneliness, uh, distance, shutting down that voice of self-criticism. And there was a time where it was accepted as a basic truth that people were just certain ways. They had certain moods. They were melancholy. They were happy. It turns out that that's not the case, that what we call a mood set point can be uh, changed. It evolves over time. Uh, we could think of this more as a, a health or a fitness, a state of being that we can become happier people, we can become more compassionate people. So I think I'm going to end on that point in the interest of time, but again I'll, I'll come back to the words of the Buddha and show them as parallel to the words of Martin Luther King. Just as the Buddha said that hatred does not end through hatred, but that by love alone is hatred healed. Martin Luther King famously said that hatred was too big of a burden to bear and that he was going to, I'll, uh, I'll interpose a, a Unitarian concept here, he was going to stand on the side of love, he was going to go with love. That, uh, And this was from the Birmingham prison when he was imprisoned after the famous march in Birmingham at a time where he was beaten, at a time where he saw many colleagues beaten and bloodied. That, Hatred was too big of a burden to bear and that he was going to go with love. May that be so. May it be present in our lives and in this world. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. If you'd like a copy of the transcript of this sermon, you can find most week's messages at www.uuberks.org slash sermons. If you have any thoughts or conversation about today's message, we hope you'll take a moment to stop by our Facebook page and share them. And from all of us at First UU Berks, may this chalice light your path and guide your way until you join us again.